Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Thirteen years after the Conservatives entered government, and since then illegal and legal migration has soared, Britain's institutions have been captured by left-wing zealots, the national debt has surpassed 100% of our GDP, the tax burden is the highest since the Second World War, and we are seemingly governed by a party indistinguishable from that of the left-wing opposition. To discuss his party's record in government, I'm joined by Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP. Has multiculturalism failed? The problem with that question is it's all in the definition of multiculturalism. What, what do you mean by it? Now, if you say, does the UK have a remarkably placid race relations system within our country, um, and that's multiculturalism, then it's succeeded. If, on the other hand, you want to say, um, uh, have we got a system where um, all cultures are uh, equal and respected and that perhaps we've lost some of our own values, then you may say that it's failed. So it depends definitionally what you're meaning. And I think we should be very reassured by the good temper of British society, particularly when you compare it to the United States. I suppose when one looks to other examples of nations which are less multicultural and more homogenous like Poland and Japan, they don't experience similar issues that we've had in Britain. So when one could look to recent riots around the Palestine protests in London after the single worst killing of Jews in a day since the Holocaust, you saw these terrible experiences on the streets of London. We've seen the horrible scandal of the grooming gangs across much of England. We've seen several terrorist attacks over the last years. There have been inter-ethnic conflicts in places like Leicester. And there are many divisions and tensions inside British society. So I suppose when you can compare us to the United States and say that we're a success, but when one compares us to, let's say, those other nations I mentioned, perhaps it's been a failure. Or, or you compare us to France, and we've been an enormous success. Uh, and that we have a much more integrated society than they have achieved in France. Um, uh, it's all a question of scale, isn't it? That if you have mass migration, which we have had now over a number of decades, you will create tensions and you will create community tensions. And you talk about issues like grooming gangs. Grooming gangs is straightforward illegality. It's not really multiculturalism. I, I think to say that there is um, a culture of child abuse uh, it is uh, being far too tolerant. I'm in favor of tolerance of people's belief, but not of behaviors that are fundamentally wrong. And, and this is actually um, Lockean, if you like, that 
Locke's view of tolerance was that you should tolerate anything that is legal in the ordinary law, but you don't tolerate things that are illegal within the ordinary law. His example was um, human sacrifice. You wouldn't tolerate that if a religion did it because killing people is just illegal, and that same applies to, to grooming. Grooming is just illegal. So is supporting terrorist groups in this country. And I think we really ought to be asking the question of why are the police not enforcing the law in relation to people who are advocating the position of Hamas, which is clearly illegal. I suppose the reason I brought up those specific examples was because I would say without mass immigration from those countries, you know, from without, without Britain, um, those things would not have happened. And that's why I talked about Poland and Japan. So they haven't had similar experiences of specifically groups of Asian men targeting young white girls, as the Home Secretary has discussed. Of course, as well, looking to terrorist attacks from as particularly Islamic terrorist attacks, they haven't had those experiences. So I, I would say that that is perhaps to do with multiculturalism and not just um, an issue of the law. Again, it goes back to, to definitions of what, what do you really mean by multiculturalism. Um, if every crime committed by somebody who uh, is either an immigrant or the descendant of an immigrant is a failure of multiculturalism, then all societies at all times fail because a percentage of any group will be criminals. There, I say there are even some criminals in Somerset which will shock anybody watching this. But in all societies there are criminals, there are bad actors. Um, would crime be lower or higher without mass immigration is an interesting question, but one to which I don't think there is an answer. The, the homogeneity of Japanese society is exceptional um, and is a deliberate, long-standing Japanese, but well, it's more than a policy, um, cultural acceptance. Uh, and Poland, well, people have been leaving Poland, so Poland's population has been declining rather than rising. I want to talk about France, that one example that you mentioned. And after recent similar experiences in France with these anti-Semitic uh, riots and protests, the French interior minister said this, and I, I want to quote from him. I have given firm instructions to the prefects that any person who is not of French nationality, whatever their status, to proceed with the immediate withdrawal of their residence permit and the immediate expulsion of these people. He, has in, he is currently in the legal process of deporting two individuals who were involved in these experiences. Should Britain do the same thing? We should ex deport people who don't have a right to be here or people who have a temporary right to be here who break the law. Yes, of course we should. We should always differentiate between British citizens and non-British citizens. If you come here as a guest and you break the law, we are entitled to send you home. That is perfectly reasonable. In my view, once you have a British passport, you are a British citizen, then you should be subject to the full protections of all other British citizens. Uh, I do not believe in um, degrees of British citizenship. Either you're British or you're not. Do you believe that diversity is Britain's strength? Oh, I think it's a completely pointless phrase. I don't think it means anything. I, I'm not really interested in diversity as an aim of policy. I'm interested in tolerance and allowing people to get on with their lives and think what they like and do what they like with, within the law. Increasingly, British cities, according to the census data, are increasingly non-white, non-white British. Um, we've seen a trend over the last few decades, particularly since the 1990s. Do you see this as a concern? Is, it, is uh, our demographic change going too far too quickly? Oh, I'm not concerned about it at all. I'm not concerned about the racial makeup of the country. 
I am concerned about the um, borders issue and the number of people coming in. We cannot cope with 606,000 people coming in every year. That's too many. It's more than we have houses for. It's more than we have infrastructure for. Um, but the social makeup of the country is not a concern of mine, as long as people are here as British citizens and willing to obey the law. This whole debate around immigration has been one that has caused major controversy um, ever since Britain had uh, sort of significant numbers of immigration since the 1940s. And one particular figure in these debates in conservatism has been Enoch Powell. He recently went viral, or not him because he's long, late, long past, but um, uh, Owen Jones did an interview at the Conservative Party conference with an activist that kind of went viral discussing Enoch Powell's legacy. And he has obviously spoken on immigration in those in the Rivers of Blood speech, which was very controversial at the time. Do you think that his words have poisoned the debate around immigration, and is there anything we can learn from his legacy? Oh, yes, unquestionably. Um, I would encourage people who quote Enoch Powell favourably on immigration to read his speech. His speech is absolutely vile. It is a really, really nasty speech with things in it that are tendentious at best, certainly difficult to prove. And um, Enoch Powell had many abilities. He was a very remarkable thinker, but his Rivers of Blood speech, in which of course he never actually says Rivers of Blood, um, he says, uh, like the ancient Roman, um, I see wars, terrible wars, and the Tiber foaming with much blood, and it got shortened into Rivers of Blood. But it is a terrible speech. And I think that had an effect on people discussing migration because it was thought that they might um, share some of those views. Can you understand the sense of betrayal and anger from many Conservative voters who have consistently voted against increases in immigration over the last 13 years? And you could even go back further than that and look at the Labour Party's promises on these things as well. But particularly when it comes to Conservative voters who said, we do not want these increases in immigration. And in fact, the opposite has happened. Brexit was meant to be an opportunity to control our borders. And unfortunately, it's gone completely the other way. So I suppose the reason I'm talking about all of these issues is because there is a genuine sense of anger in the country at what your party has done on this issue. Well, Margaret Thatcher and Michael Howard, in their periods of office, Margaret Thatcher's Prime Minister, Michael Howard as Home Secretary, showed that you can control immigration successfully. And we haven't done so. And partly we haven't done so uh, because of the ridiculous scoring measures used by the ABR on migration, which has led the government to believe that it is one way of growing the economy. And it may grow the economy in nominal GDP terms, but it certainly doesn't grow it in GDP per capita terms. So yes, I, I mean, I think this has been um, a, a, a failing. And once we left the EU, we should have been able to get control. We are being completely loose still on migration and we should be getting it down. 606,000 is simply too many. And the focus on illegal migration is essentially a distraction. That's under 10% of the total migration coming into this country each year. But of course, the illegal migration is also an issue. Um, we've seen billions of pounds spent on these hotels every single day. I think something about seven, eight million pounds is spent on taxpayer money on hotels uh, serving these migrants. And again, uh, many local communities are feeling the pressure of this. So it's that feeling, I, I just want to gauge your views on that feeling of, as I say, betrayal and anger. Do you, have you experienced this when you go back to your constituency? My constituents, when I knock on doors, 
are as concerned about migration as people across the country. It is, I would argue, the most frequently raised issue on the doorstep. It's not raised by everybody, but it is raised with considerable regularity. I want to quote from your fellow Conservative MP, Neil O'Brien. He said on Twitter, supply matters, but we won't resolve the housing crisis unless we can tackle demand, including from migration. 48% of households in social housing in London are headed by someone not born in the UK. How is that fair for British people who live in the UK? Well, the issue with housing, Neil is right, is to do with mass migration that if you think of 606,000 last year, we are not building enough houses to house those 606,000, let alone the increase in demand coming from um, people who are already in the country. So housing is a real problem exacerbated by migration. Um, and we need to get away from the ABR view of how the economy works, because this is another area where the ABR is failing and leading to bad policy making because the ABR has been uh, deified since the fall of Liz Truss. So the OBR is this quango, this sort of semi-autonomous government body that um, offers predictions about the economy and has influenced in a big way um, Conservative ministers' thinking on economic policy, in particular when it came to Liz Truss's government. And yet Labour are now saying that the OBR should have more powers. And obviously I'm, I'm presuming you disagree with that. Oh, it's absolute madness. The OBR scores individual policies and migration scores positively for the economy. And therefore, when a chancellor is looking for growth to pay for all sorts of things the chancellors want to pay for, he and the Treasury consistently argue for increases in migration because it's seen to be economically beneficial. And I simply don't believe that is true, and it's certainly not true when you look at GDP uh, per capita. Um, uh, but there are other parts of this that there's pressure from um, industry to have more people come in. Which governments should resist? Why? Because the people you get coming in are um, low-cost labour that are part of the reason for our productivity problem. That the UK's future is as a um, high-skilled, expensive economy. Our future's economy is not as a low-skilled, low-wage economy. And what you want to see is the wages of those at the bottom rising so that they can afford a better standard of living. And mass migration keeps the wages of the entry level to employment lower. But it also means we do things that are routinely econ uneconomic. And this is a challenge because nobody ever wants to say you shouldn't do things. But actually, if the only way to pick fruit is to import labor to do it, isn't it better to grow the fruit in a foreign country and import the fruit and grow something that can be harvested by machine in the UK. You increase your productivity, you lower cost for consumers, and you also stop the migration problem getting worse. You were an avid supporter of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, and during his premiership, immigration increased, mass migration increased. I just wonder whether you were one of those ministers who were questioning this increase in migration, because when it comes, when you're the Home Secretary and you, and you say, right, 
to the cabinet. I want to decrease migration. So they might go to each minister and say, well, do we need the health and social care visa when you look for the Department of Health and Social Care? Do you, XYZ minister, do you, are you happy to reduce visas in your area? And presumably a lot of them say, no, we're not happy to do this. So did you challenge the prime minister on this? Well, my role for most of the time Boris's prime ministership was as leader of the House of Commons, and my job was therefore legislative. I wasn't involved in the policy making on migration. So the bit I was involved with was supporting Priti Patel in her borders bill and trying to make sure that that got through Parliament in a robust state, which it did. But until Liz became prime minister, I wasn't on the cabinet committees discussing migration. Um, when I was in that position, I was very much supporting Suella Braverman's view against the Treasury view uh, that migration had to be um, dealt with and that you could not simply uh, maintain the uh, huge flow of um, migrants coming to this country. Do you see that as a failure of Boris Johnson's government? Well, I think there are a number of things to bear in mind. First of all, that we don't leave the European Union until... Um, whatever it is, the, the, um, it's 2020 is when we're finally free uh, of the EU's yoke and freedom of movement ends. Um, that then leaves relatively little time, whilst he's still in government, leaves, what, two and a half years, interrupted by COVID, uh, to legislate and put a proper system in place and then to make sure that it's working effectively. So was it a shining success? No, it wasn't, but the time was relatively limited. It's worth mentioning that the major increases in migration came from non-EU countries, which the Conservative government has had 13 years to legislate against. Um, well, there's, there's truth in that, that the 606,000 who came in last year, but there are a number of things where you get human rights applications and so on and so forth. So. Um, where are you drawing the line on, on family members? Um, and it's not as straightforward as you may think because we were bound in by uh, other commitments that aren't entirely EU but are not entirely unlinked to the EU. And we need reform of the Human Rights Act. It's well, part of things we will have to do if we want to control migration. I want to talk about a couple of other of aspects of the legacy of Boris Johnson's government. Now, he was a real net zero zealot, I'd say, maybe even on, on par with Greta Thunberg's uh, activism. Uh, maybe you disagree with me. <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far. Uh, but also, um, when, it looks, when you look at taxation, uh, taxes, the tax burden increased, spending massively increased, the debt massively increased, migration increasing. So was there any point when you were a minister, where you considered resignation or um, challenging the government on these issues, do, do you have any sort of regrets in that area? Well, I strongly opposed the increase in national insurance contributions and said that we should be cutting expenditure rather than raising taxes, and that was, was my position. Um, I didn't consider um, resigning, though there was a brief flurry uh, of excitement because I'd been in the cabinet meeting uh, that had discussed this and then had a meeting afterwards um, in the cabinet office uh, and um, uh, uh, I'd left my telephone behind and so I came back to Downing Street and went out the front door much later than all the other cabinet ministers because I'd had this subsequent meeting and then people were in touch with me saying were you staying in to be persuaded not to resign? No, 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 I'd only gone back in to rescue my telephone, it was uh, no, gr no great excitement. Um, 
But I made the case for cutting expenditure. I thought the expenditure for um, COVID was necessary as long as you were closing down the economy, that you couldn't tell people not to do any business and not then fund them for it. Um, uh, but I thought we closed down the economy for too long, and I certainly tried to advance those arguments on, on occasions um, in the various ways that you have to push your arguments forward. But none of those issues for you felt like a resigning matter? Um, I mean, this is always a difficult question of being in office. Do you make things better if you resign, or do you actually make no difference to the waters close over and nobody notices? I, I never thought there was any particular occasion on which I would have made a fundamental difference. Um, and that by being there, you are able to make the arguments which helps the balance of opinion. So when you come to not closing down for Christmas 2020, the fact that I was in the cabinet meant that there was another voice arguing that case against some pretty strong voices for another shutdown. And it's interesting, you talk about your colleagues having very strong voices in favour of another lockdown. And when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he actually expelled 21 people from the Conservative Party, MPs from the Conservative Party, after they voted against Brexit legislation. This was seen at the time as a sort of culling of some of the more socially liberal pro-Remain groups of, of, of Conservative MPs. Do you think that at the moment today, there are too many Conservative MPs who are simply not Conservative in principle? Well, I don't think it was an expulsion of socially liberal, that, that Boris himself has always been socially liberal, and much more so than, uh, the, than I am. I think the Conservative Party always has to be a broad church, that, I, that the expulsion of 21 MPs was truly exceptional. Normally, I wouldn't be in favour of taking the whip away from MPs, that there's no monopoly on wisdom on one wing or the other of the party, and it's important that both sides of the party are represented. Your party, according to opinion polls, is facing an electoral wipeout. According to some polls, you're 20 points behind. Others are sort of more narrowed the gap, but at least 10 points, I'd say, is the average. Um, what are you doing to try and prevent this oblivion? Well, the, the main job to um, improve the polls is obviously with the Prime Minister. I think some things he's been doing recently have been absolutely right. Um, pulling back from the extreme green zealotry is clearly sensible, and I hope he will go further. The Prime Ministers always need to show that they are on the side of the people that they govern. And that means lowering their cost of living, making their life easier, taking regulations off their shoulders. Um, the more he does that, the more popular he will become. And that, that just the slight um, uh, amelioration of the green zealotry has made him more popular. So I'd encourage him to go further on that. Rishi Sunak is trying to position himself as the man to change Britain. But it's, it's sort of, it rings a bit hollow, I think, for many people who've seen 13 years of, your, of, of the Conservative Party in power. And I understand he's a different Prime Minister. And on that issue of, of, of reversing the Greens' electorate, one could look to the uh, actions of Theresa May, again, Conservative Prime Minister, who enacted 2050 net zero into law. So he's sort of reversing his own party's legacy. There's a certain irony in that, isn't there? Well, the 2050 thing is only possible because of the 2008 or 7, whichever it is, Climate Change Act, which was a Labour Act of Parliament, which... Um, has bound the government into various commitments that I think are simply unaffordable and we need to get out of, uh, and that 2050 net zero is a worthy aspiration, but we're not going to get there by making people cold and poor.
But as I mentioned, it, it, the legacy of the Conservatives on this issue of net zero, I mean, you haven't repealed the Climate Change Act, you haven't um, no. shut down the Climate Change Committee, for example. Instead, Theresa May um, sort of... Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, that last bit of Theresa May was a great mistake. Um, uh, but there was no opposition to it. You've got to govern in the reality of the times you're governing in, and um, what, five or six people voted against the Climate Change Act when it was passed through Parliament? I wasn't in Parliament at the time. We've just had this dreadful energy bill passed through the House of Commons, um, and a very small number of us voted against it. But it's um, uh, piling further charges uh, on people. It's allowing uh, the state to make criminal law by secondary legislation if you don't insulate your home properly, you get six months in jail. It's all absolute madness. Uh, and yet there is an overwhelming consensus for it. And Rishi has begun to break that. That's really exciting. It's very good news um, because now he's made the um, first mark, the, 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 the notch. There is a chance that this mighty ape can be brought down. Do you get the sense that the Conservative Party is facing um, a great challenge in the election next year, similar to that? Uh, of the feeling in 1997. And uh, again, I mentioned the opinion polls and all of the issues that we're discussing today. Many Conservatives feel a sense of doom around the country's future when one looks at Conservative policies, all of which we've gone through um, sort of extensively already in this interview. So do you see a comparison between 1997 and uh, 2024? I love making comparisons between elections, as do almost all politicians, and trying to work out is it like 97 or 92 or 1964, um, or 1906, you know, which one is it? Um, I don't know whether we're affected by the broadcasting regulations in relation to by-elections. Then I can discuss going to Mid-Bedfordshire, because Mid-Bedfordshire was absolutely fascinating. I went on the way back from the Manchester conference and did some canvassing, and met quite a few people. And the response I got from Conservatives was, we're definitely not voting for anybody else, but we're fed up with you. And the question is, do they turn out to vote? They're not enamoured of Keir Starmer, but they feel we ought to be doing more. Now, it's perfectly possible that they will um, turn out to vote in a general election in a different way from the way they may turn out in a by-election because they know it, it matters. I'm quite hopeful about Mid-Bedfordshire as it happens. I think there's a good chance the Conservatives could win because the base support was holding up. It was really a question of turnout. And you saw in Somerton and Froome the turnout collapsed. But the Lib Dems didn't get as many votes as David Heath used to get when he was the MP. So the Lib Dems weren't even getting out their historic vote. They were getting out just slightly more than the Tories in a by-election with a turnout in the 30% level. So um, it's very interesting to make these comparisons. It's very turnout driven. The good news from a conservative point of view is that Keir Starmer isn't Tony Blair. Um, on the other hand, we've been in office for a long time and your point, well, why didn't you do this over the last 13 years, is always a strong one. Uh, and I do want to talk again, come back, coming back to that point, when one looks at, as I, as I mentioned, record migration, debt, taxation, um, green zealotry, all of these issues, who do you blame for this legacy? Well, there are all sorts of things that you can, you can look at. The, the, the green issue was one that was simply unchallengeable in British politics until the energy price went up a year ago. 
And fascinatingly, when the price goes up, people suddenly say, well, I'm not paying for this rubbish. I want to be able to afford to heat my house. I'm going to... Virtue signaling stops when the price comes home. And so that changed people's minds. And you see now people who um, virtue signal, it's Sula Brahman's great phrase about luxury opinions. That they are luxury opinions now, and that people want to be um, warm and prosperous, not, not cold and poor. So that changed that argument by force majeure. But until then, anyone saying, oh, we should be a bit more slow about climate change was banging their head against a brick wall. And there are issues like that in politics where you can't um, fight it because the mood of the nation is, is settled until something fundamental and outside external changes it which happened. I want you to rate, uh, if, you, if you'd like, um, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of conservatism, 1 being sort of, uh, sort of fairly left-wing, kind of George Osborne-type conservative, and, and 10 being, and maybe you disagree with that, I'm just joking, no, no, and, ten, right. and 10 being uh, a sort of, you know, the most Margaret Thatcher conservative you could have. Whether I'm going to do it on your scale is another matter. We might try and come to that. But rather oddly... I have a feeling I'm ideologically closer to Rishi Sunak than I am to Boris. Now, Boris is definitely a closer friend than uh, the the Prime Minister, who I don't really know at all well. Um, But Sunak is uh, is not a pinko. I'm not saying Boris is a pinko, but Boris is much happier to spend money than Rishi is. Rishi is much more a sound money man than Boris. Rishi is much more cautious on the... Uh, green issues than Boris is, and Rishi is um, on the margins more socially conservative than Boris. All positions which are uh, not a million miles away from from mine. What I want him to do is put more of this into practice, because I, I, I think a lot of his instincts are good conservative instincts. So where are we getting to? Um, uh, sort of seven out of ten in terms on the on the conservative spectrum. So is he more conservative than Boris then, overall? I, I think in many ways, yes. I mean, he's, not as, he's not as charismatic. He wasn't as effective on Brexit, which wouldn't have happened without um, Boris. Uh, Boris is very good on defence of the realm issues. So AUKUS was a huge Boris achievement, as was Ukraine, which I don't think would have happened without Boris, and defense of the realm is one of the archetypal Tory issues. So it's... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not quite as simple as who is more left or who is more right wing, um, but that Boris is quite hard to pigeonhole as a right-wing conservative leader because he's got views in different parts of the spectrum. It's funny, whatever you say about Boris Johnson, he's very popular in Eastern Europe. I've just come back from Poland. People there are huge fans of him, Lithuania and other places. Um, But I I want to talk about another issue that we've both uh, sort of investigated, as it were, and you've very much dealt with whilst you were a minister, and that is wokeness in Whitehall. 
to what extent is the Whitehall so-called blob to blame for sort of conservative failures over this last 13 years? I have very mixed views on that, um, partly because I think ministers can just get on with it and can make things happen, and that ministers shouldn't shy away from taking the blame for things or the credit for things, and the doctrine of ministerial responsibility is important. On the other hand, it's not just in uh, uh, um, the civil service, but also in big business, there is the acceptance of diversity and inclusion as a means of stopping things happening. And there is a problem with the Equalities Act that means that there is a public sector qualities duty that gums up the system and stops things happening and slows down decision making, even with ministers who want to get on and make decisions. Now, this is partly the civil service fault because they revel in it, but it's partly the government's fault because we haven't repealed or amended the Equalities Act or the Human Rights Act or the Climate Change Act. And these big acts are used to say, oh, minister, you can't do that. Why not? It's illegal. What do you mean it's illegal? Um, uh, look at this act. Look at that act. You can't do it. Uh, and that is a, that is a problem. Uh, and I think um, we need to look at the acts that we have passed that are gumming up the system. So there needs to be a great sort of legislative reform if any Conservative government wants to be efficient and wants to enact its manifesto properly. Oh, yes. That we need um, to be very clear on the legislation a Conservative government has to pass to take back the levers of power. The levers of power had, after all, been delegated to Brussels for 50 years, by and large, and we're beginning to work out how to use them again. Dominic Cummings is a very explosive figure. When he was in government as an advisor, he was, he was always talking about and blogging about reform of the civil service. This has been an almost obsession of his for a very long time. He has fallen out of favour with the Conservative Party uh, and he plans to start a new party according to his substack, which he sort of dubbed the Startup Party. Is this something you would consider joining? No, 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 it's delusional. Why? Well, because a party set up by Dominic Cummings is not going to get anywhere. Um, that that um, more charismatic people than Dominic have set up political parties and they don't get anywhere. That we are in a two-party system and the only way a new party would work is if there's a change in the electoral system. He makes, uh, I would say, fairly persuasive arguments that would you may agree with some of them, in t- particular in terms of Whitehall reform and um, when one looks to defence um, contracts and things like that, or, as I say, uh, trying to tackle these issues of civil servants being an independent of ministers and uh, wh- how to use the, the levers of power. So these things are positive. So, so why, why, when he was um, chief of staff to the prime minister, or whatever his official title was, uh, didn't he propose some legislation to do this? There's a Civil Service Act 2010 that confines the abilities of ministers to do things in relation to civil service. That act needs to be amended. I suppose one could argue if you were, uh, from Dominic Cummings' point of view, he he was sort of caught up with COVID and all sorts of other issues. But um, but, but maybe you're right, I don't know. Uh, I want to ask about Nigel Farage. Um, There was some uh, sort of speculation that he might join the Conservative Party, which I think he's now sort of denied that he's ever going to do that. Would you accept him in the Conservatives? Of course, of course. Nigel is a Tory. You know, whether he's a member formerly of the Conservative Party, Nigel is a Tory. He's as Tory as I am. So, he, so um, you're not concerned about uh, the start-up party from Dominic Cummings. Let's talk about reform very briefly. Obviously, this is the Richard Tice's party, Nigel Farage's, I think, the sort of em- emeritus 
president or something like that. Um, uh, is this a, a concern for you on the doorstep where you've got this party on your kind of right flank who are making these um, sort of, I'd say, valid criticisms on, on your issues of legacy we've talked about in this interview? Has this come up on the doorstep? Are you concerned Nobody about reform? Nobody mentions reform on the doorstep. No, no one knows who they are? Uh, no. um, Nigel Farage is a really exceptional politician, charismatic, with his finger on the pulse of British people, could not win a single seat in Parliament for UKIP, couldn't even get himself elected for UKIP. And he is a political phenomenon. The UK doesn't work for these sorts of insurgent parties. Even the SDP, with incredible leadership, couldn't hold on to the seats that it had in 1983 and by 1987 was down to a rump. And so the, the, the idea that all these random new parties are going to make great breakthroughs is for the birds. But can you understand why people are looking for alternatives to the Conservative Party, particularly after these 13 years of legacy? Well, what people will do if the Conservatives don't persuade people to turn out to vote for us, which I'm obviously hoping and anticipating that we will be able to do, so they'll either stay at home or they'll vote Labour. Or some eccentrics will vote Lib Dem. Um, but so for you, it goes always goes back to this argument. We that are a we two are, party system. We are better than the alternative, so vote for us. That's the reason. And, and and we have a responsibility within the Conservative Party to make the Conservative Party as good as it can possibly be, and have the right policies and the right people to run the country properly. That's fundamental. And I would encourage um, people like Nigel Farage to join the Tory Party to make sure that it is the party that it ought to be. I want to ask about Leo Varadkar's comments, the Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, um, saying that uh, the UK has shirked its responsibilities since Brexit. How do you respond? Ukraine. Ireland hardly bestrides the world like a colossus in international affairs. Do you think that ministers should be more, um, I suppose, uh, voicing a, a greater sort of um, opposition to these comments? These no, no, why should we care? I mean, what's the population of Ireland? It may be impacting our diplomatic stance on the world stage. That's what, one what because the Irish Prime Minister says something? Possibly. Representing how many million people? Uh, let's talk what's about... the GDP of Ireland? Who's their biggest trading partner? Why, why, why should this be... Why should this matter to us? Why should we be the least bit worried about what some relative obscure provincial politician says? Let's talk about freedom of speech very briefly, and then we're going to talk about history, which is a great subject. Um, in the UK recently, we've seen many people being arrested over tweets and things that they've said online. We've seen examples of people being arrested and charged over um, sort of help putting out racist memes and group chats and things like that. Do you think that the Communications Act, which is sort of uh, tries to ban grossly offensive content, as it were, should be reformed or repealed? It's a very good question, um, and it's, it's a very, very difficult balancing act. Clearly, you should not be able to go out and advocate for a terrorist organisation or give them succour or encourage people to join them or say that their activities are right. That should be very straightforwardly illegal. But simply offending people, should that be illegal? And where do you go with WhatsApp? Is WhatsApp private or is it public? If you say to me something privately when this recording ends that's grossly offensive, um, should that be criminalised? Or should I just um, think, good heavens, that's rather an odd thing for somebody to say? And, 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 and I, I don't think these issues are, are easy. Um, I think it's hard for the police, which doesn't always get the proportionality right, uh, and sometimes um, uh, seems to be going out of its way to find uh, hate speech when people have just expressed views that are controversial, and there's definitely a difference between the two. Um, but it is all about balance. 
and it's a difficulty in using an old act of trying to deal with a new problem. But you're a great supporter of freedom of speech and uh, those sort of ancient English liberties that, uh, that, we, that, you know, that, that have been there for many hundreds of years. And it seems today that, that there really is a free speech crisis in Britain when people are going to prison for offensive memes. This is a very, very odd situation. And your party... No, I, I agree. I mean, uh, that, that um, people should not be going to prison for causing offence unless they're stirring up racial hatred or advocating violence. And, and that, that's got to be where the limit is. And I see the police decided in the end not to proceed with the prosecution against a lady who was praying outside an abortion clinic. Because that was a thought crime. That was even worse, completely ridiculous. And they always go in mob-handed. I mean, it, it, why did they need um, a, 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 um, a um, sharabang load of policemen to arrest one lady? Let's talk about conservative history. Let's talk about Margaret Thatcher to begin with. This lady has a, a massive uh, sort of looming legacy over the modern Conservative Party today. Every Conservative Party leader loves to say, I am the sort of, uh, the, sort of uh, the forebearer of Margaret Thatcher's policies. I am the new Margaret Thatcher. Rishi Sunak did it. Liz Truss did it. To a certain extent, Boris Johnson did the same thing. But do you think that Margaret Thatcher failed in some ways, particularly when it comes to social conservatism? You, you describe yourself as socially conservative. Obviously, her economic liberal reforms are very successful in some ways. But on that issue of social conservatism, Britain really has swung to the left in the last few decades. Well, Margaret Thatcher was herself a socialist. Of course. But we've had 13 years of Labour government in between, which was very socially liberal. I don't think you can blame Margaret Thatcher for that. No. And do you think that um, her reforms went too far and too quickly in terms of those communities which relied on, let's say, mining, for example, as one job? And, and sort of that has led to a sort of, um, I don't know, a collapse in sort of morale in some communities. I think the difficulty there uh, is that she was dealing with the reality that she then faced. And it's always very tempting for politicians to keep failing industries going. And you keep them going, you keep them going, you keep them going, and then eventually it becomes unsustainable and they collapse in a heap suddenly without a transition taking place. I think the market is much better at providing a transition than state intervention. And my own constituency is interesting in this regard because North East Somerset is where most of the North Somerset coal fields were. The last one closed in 1974. And they closed without any great fuss because there were lots of other jobs available that the free market provided them. And as I understand it, the coal board found it difficult to recruit miners. And so they were um, persuading people to come down from other parts of the country, they were even getting people in from abroad to work the mines, but they did this for a bit and then they went and got other jobs. And so the mines closed not because the coal was bad or because there wasn't continued supply, but because they simply couldn't get the employees to go down the pits. There were other jobs available and that was a market solution. And in lots of communities there wasn't a market solution and therefore the mines were kept going well beyond their economic lifespan. Uh, the costs became insupportable, and then they all closed in a rush, particularly after Scargill's very ill-thought-through strike. Let's talk about Lord Salisbury, great Conservative Prime Minister from the late 19th century. 
who there's an excellent biography of his we were talking about earlier from Andrew Roberts, and, and I'm not going to quiz you on it because you read it 20 years ago. But he did say uh, this fantastic conservative mantra, and I want to get your reaction to this. Whatever happens will be for the worse, and therefore it is in our interest that as little should happen as possible. What can we learn from Lord Salisbury's vision of conservatism? Well, it's uh, similar to uh, Palmerston's comment. Change, change, aren't things bad enough already? Um, and I, I think conservatives ought to recognize that you very often change something thinking that will be better. You cause disruption and it's not much better in the end anyway. And the job of a conservative is to work out what change is actually necessary. Because you create disruption and disruption is unsettling for people and may be damaging to people. And unless there is a real benefit from this disruption, you shouldn't do it. Because many conservatives have, I would say, become radicalised, particularly some online and journalists across America and to a certain extent in Britain. But particularly when you look at America and they say we need to destroy the FBI, we need to destroy these institutions, we need to revolutionise our, our government because it's been captured in many ways by our ideological enemies. They talk about the permanent deep state in America. In the UK, we have the equivalent in the civil service, the so-called blob. And I think these arguments are, to some extent, persuasive. If one has been trying to elect politicians for many decades to enact conservative policies, and they are consistently disrupted by those institutions which um, are meant to enact those policies, then surely it makes sense to remove those institutions and to start again from scratch, or to re at least reform them in, uh, in a heavy way, let's say, for example. So what do, you, what do you say to these arguments about whether conservatives should be more revolutionary in their thinking? Well, we've got one great institution which we should, of course, restore, and the restoration of which is part of the Brexit project, and that's Parliament. And Parliament then passes our laws and the restoration of the Constitution. So um, we need to remind the courts uh, that the supreme law comes from the High Court of Parliament, which is the highest court in the land, and its law is the law, which it's the job of the courts to interpret, not to overrule. And the EU and the ECHR create an impression where the judges were actually over Parliament, and they were. As long as we were in the EU, the judges could cast down an act of Parliament. They can't do that anymore. That's really important. So I'm in favour of restoring our most important institution from which the other institutions flow. I'm also, of course, in favour of using the tools to hand. We should um, appoint people who are not active quangocrats with lefty ideology uh, to run important swathes of British life, and we should bring back accountability. Who would you rather decide something, an unelected bureaucrat or a politician accountable to Parliament? I would rather a politician accountable to Parliament, who you can throw out if you don't like his or her decision, whereas the quangocrat goes on forever. So it's about restoring uh, the strength of our institutions rather than uh, revolution. Well, it's that issue of restoration that let's, we, we can discuss. Sitting in this chair only a few months ago was Yoram Hazoni, the Israeli philosopher. Mm -hmm. He is the man who's behind the national conservatism conferences that have been held all over the world. I know that you attended one recently 
in London. And he wrote a, a fantastic book, I think it's worth reading. Uh, you've read it, uh, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, and, and he talks about that restoration idea versus revolution. And conservatives should restore that, that sort of order that we used to have. And, and I think when one looks to these institutions that, uh, like the Supreme Court and the uh, Quangocracy, the Climate Change Commission, the OBR, all of these supposed, all of these institutions, they're very, very novel and new institutions. Yes, right. They're not something that, because some conservatives argue, well, you can't reform these things because we're conservatives and we don't, we, we don't, we're not revolutionaries, we don't do these things. But in fact, isn't it about restoring to the, that sort of period before these sure. Blairite institutions Absolutely. existed? You can restore the status quo ante, which leaving the EU was fundamental to, because all these quangos made sense whilst we were in the EU because that's where decision-making was made. So you needed a Supreme Court because you needed a court that could uh, overrule Parliament where it clashed with EU law. And that made sense under the structures of the European Union. You needed quangos who plugged into the European Union because that's where the rules were coming from. The rules were agreed at the European level and the unaccountable quangocrats were merely representing the EU, where there was the Council of Ministers and there was the European Parliament, though most decision-making obviously was from the Commission. Um, these quangos have now been unplugged from the EU and haven't been plugged into anything else. So they're accountable only to themselves, and that needs to be changed. And the accountability has to go back to ministers and to Parliament. And this is an issue, I think, that is really concerning about a future Labour government. And what we saw Labour do in, in, during the Blair years was remove these so-called political footballs from the political arena and place them into these so-called independent institutions. And just to give you one example of that, the, the Bank of England became a so-called independent institution, which then set in interest rates independent of government. Now, there are obviously good arguments as to why it, would, why it should be independent. Um, for example, when ministers, they may want to uh, appease certain voters who have houses, and therefore they want to keep interest rates low, and that impacts people with savings. So there's a, there's a, there is an interesting debate around that one issue. But just generally, do you, are you concerned about Labour's um, reforms in this area where they will be removing the political nature of these decisions and putting it into institutions which fundamentally support their worldview? No, that's the key. They're not taking it out of politics. They're just perpetuating their politics. So Mark Carney goes along and endorses Rachel Reeves. He was not an independent governor of the Bank of England. He was a left-wing governor of the Bank of England who did untold damage to the UK economy. He got monetary policy hopelessly wrong, and he implemented all sorts of green stuff under the guise of Bank of England regulations to make it harder to lend to oil and gas companies and so on. So he was a left-wing menace doing great harm to our economy. And who appointed him? to be independent. He was appointed by a Conservative, which was a, a mistake. Um, um, I'm not, not a mistake I'm going to defend, but that was faux independence. And that's the problem with giving these jobs to people like that. So you have the Supreme Court under Baroness Hale, which became a completely politicised court. The, the, the judgment on uh, prorogation uh, didn't understand the Constitution. It said that prorogation was not a proceeding in Parliament. Well, that just shows what a mistake it was to take the Supreme Court out of Parliament, because anyone who goes along to prorogation knows that it is a proceeding in Parliament, fundamental proceeding in Parliament. What is Parliament? It's the King in Parliament. It is not just the Lords and Commons meeting as separate committees. So there was ignorance of our Constitution combined with political pro-European activism.
in a body that claimed to be independent. It's quite the wrong way to, to do things, and that's where we need to have a proper restoration so that our institutions have credibility and that political decisions go firmly back to the politicians who are accountable to the, to the electorate. And of course, the Labour Party will do more of that um, because they think that maintains power for them even when they're out of office, and actually they were right. And unfortunately, as, as you said, it was George Osborne who appointed Mark Carney. And that's a perfect example of where perhaps Conservatives in some ways have failed to, um, to I suppose, deal with these so-called independent bodies and, and, and appoint <coughs> Conservatives to, to lead those bodies. And I know there have been attempts to do so, uh, particularly at the BBC, but again, there's been pushback against Boris Johnson's attempts to, I think, put the former male editor... Is, is that right, Paul Dacre? Yeah, yeah, Paul Dacre was meant to go to Ofcom. Yes, that's yes. right, and uh, Ofcom, and, 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 and that, that didn't work after, I think, media pressure and political pressure as but well. No, no, it was the civil service who blocked it. So, so I they, they, they decided that Paul Dacre wasn't pay par billet, and therefore he could not proceed to the next round where it was a ministerial decision. I suppose my question to you is on, the, on these issues is, why should we trust the Conservative Party to do this uh, in the future? If we, if we want to elect them, after all of these uh, issues we've had in the past, w w can you just give me a reason to trust oh, yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there has been a fundamental change. Um, first of all, you've got to bear in mind what Blair did, which was clever. Not only did he set up the crank case, he also set up the appointment systems. And so the appointment systems, as in blocking Paul Dacre, uh, were devised to stop Conservatives being appointed. We would have to legislate to change those appointment systems, which we, we need to do. Um, why have we not legislated? Well, uh, first of all, we never had a majority. So until 2019, there is no conser effective Conservative majority. There is an attempt to reform uh, quangos that gets completely bogged down in the House of Lords because all the quango crats are either members of the House of Lords or mates of members of the House of Lords. So that, that was um, under Cameron, that was tried, bonfire of the quangos didn't really happen. From then on we didn't have sufficient majority to get things done until 2019 when of course um, Covid came along <coughs> and then Boris was removed and we know what happens after that. So that's, that's part of the problem. Partly all these quangos made sense as long as we were in the European Union. They had to be. And you couldn't take political control of them because it would have been against EU law. Now it's not. So it's only a relatively short time we've been able to do this. So you say, well, why believe the Tories will do it? Well, first of all, surely we've learnt our lesson that we need in government to operate the levers of power, and therefore if we can win a majority at the next election, we need to legislate to, to change this. We now have the power to do it because it's not decided at a, a European level. Uh, and so I think there is a real opportunity to, to do it. Let's talk a bit about Disraeli and some other Conservative Prime Ministers from history. <laughs> I just wonder if there's any lessons that you think we should learn from them, any kind of interesting points that you, you think that Rishi Sunak can, can uh, develop on. Um, for example, Disraeli's vision of a sort of one-nation conservatism, maybe you could talk about that. And maybe there are other leaders that are sort of, as I mentioned, Lord Salisbury being one of sort of more obscure Conservative Prime Ministers. Anyone else, maybe Stanley Baldwin or others, who we think we can learn from? Wouldn't particularly learn from Stanley Baldwin, no. Uh, but I would learn from Disraeli, because what is Disraeli on about? What is he always trying to do? He is in trying to improve the condition of the people. And his um, administration, 1874 to 1881, passes Acts of Parliament on improving the condition of the people that remain fundamental acts for about 50 years. So things relating to um, public health he introduces, he improves water quality, he improves dwellings, the Artisans Dwelling Act, it's, it's housing, it's how do you make this new electorate that he introduces. Now, um, 
um, Roy Jenkins in his biography of Gladstone, and not particularly disagreed with by Blake, uh, implies that Disraeli in 1867 only really widens the franchise to annoy Gladstone. And that's all it's about. I think it's absolute nonsense because Disraeli was talking about having a wider franchise when he was a young man. It's something that he seems to believe all his life because he trusts the people and then he wants to persuade them to vote conservative by making their life chances better. And that's what we ought to be doing. And this is about providing people with what they want and giving them more choice, not by telling them how they ought to lead their lives. That's what Disraeli was so good at. And he set the route for conservative domination of the 20th century by showing that we were genuinely on the side of the people in a way that the Labour Party never was, but the people as individuals rather than as a collective. And Disraeli uh, passed this, is it the second Reform Act? Yes, um, the uh, Reform Act. Uh, he passed that against the wishes of many in his party, including Lord Salisbury, so perhaps this is the beginning of the history of conservative betrayals as well. Um, the, the other uh, Prime Minister, I, I'm sure you disagree with that, I'm, just, I, I'm semi-joking, um, but also what about Lord Derby, do you think, we, can we learn from him? I know you're a big supporter of Lord Derby, you've told me that in an interview before. Well, I mean, he didn't really have any majority governments, but um, perhaps... He didn't have any majority governments, and he had the... Um, uh, wit to understand what a great man Disraeli was, who couldn't have been an easy colleague. And uh, Disraeli probably isn't possible without the support he gets from Derby. And just very briefly, we don't, why don't we like Stanley Baldwin? It's not that we don't like him, but here, I, uh, what do you draw from him? What, I suppose does, what does he get right? One argues that he um, supported a version of English paternalism and sort of, uh, I suppose, quiet conservatism, and he had this very sort of... Um, this vision of Britain that was, again, similar to that of Lord Salisbury, about not changing things necessarily, enacting small reforms. I mean, obviously, on foreign policy, one can criticise him for lack of rearmament, etc. He goes to the abdication right, uh, which is very important and crucial for the stability of our our nation. Um, uh, Chamberlain gets the economy right as Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is very important, but I'd say it was more Chamberlain than than Baldwin. I'm not sure, I mean, but Baldwin is one of those figures who manages to keep things going along, which is always harder than it seems um, retrospectively. But it's hard to pin anything very important or exciting is, isn't, to him. Isn't that the great success of a Conservative is to not... A, not, not to do anything exciting. Exactly. It, it depends on the challenges that you're facing. I mean, he, he presided over an era of domestic prosperity. The empire was maintained. I think these are great successes, well, well, even if they're not hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, the economics of the, of the 20s and 30s is, is very interesting. Um, he um, uh, presides on taking us back to the gold standard, which is absolutely devastating, but he then presides on us coming off it. And it's a bit like the ERM. That Blame he, Churchill for that. He's responsible for a policy that completely fails, and then by good fortune finds that a fo- policy is forced upon him that he never particularly wanted that works. And a lot of house building in the 1930s as well. It's very interesting. I'm sorry if we bored viewers about that last little section on history, but um, thank you so much, uh, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, for joining us. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.